0: Volume four, chapter three of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, BC. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume four, chapter three to play the lover is not difficult to most men even where their hearts are not really interested a few fine speeches a little commonplace declamation are easily produced and generally accepted but willoughby always a very poor dissembler and who felt in despite of every effort to repress them sentiments towards miss fishamon bordering on antipathy, was very conscious that he should ill answer her ideas of a passionate lover, and this consciousness deprived him of the little power he might otherwise have had to dissemble. He now, with increased confusion of thought, repented that he had gone so far, but to recede was impossible, and with a counterance expressed rather of perturbation and wretchedness than all of the pleasurable sensations inspired by successful love he entered the apartment where miss Fitzhaman had been prepared by Lady Castlenorth to receive his tender professions he approached her and took her hand muttered something about the final eclaircissement of his doubts as to another person for he dared not trust his voice with the name of celestina and something about being in consequence of that released from his former engagements then in a still more tremendous and uncertain tone he solicited her permission to dedicate his life to her service and to hasten those preparations for his happiness which his former uncertainties and embarrassments had put it out of his power to solicit with that ardour which he should under other circumstances have evinced the falsehood he was uttering died away almost inarticulately on his lips and his revolting heart reproached him for it faint and reluctant as it was as he finished his speech, Miss Fitzhaman turned her large black eyes, which had till then been modestly cast down, full upon him. She seemed to have been trying to make them speak tenderness, but to him they expressed nothing but an imperious inquiry into the truth of his professions, from which he shrunk. In a moment, however, those eyes so little calculated for the soft parley of affection contrived to overflow with tears she gave him the hand he had just before let go and inclining her head tenderly towards him said in terms as gentle as she could command oh willoughby you know too well you have long known my unfortunate partiality towards you a partiality which with reluctance and with regret i own not all your too evident coldness has conquered alas could i now believe you sincere believe it i conjure you cried he in a hurried voice and hastening to put an end to a dialogue which he found he could so ill support believe it dear Madame, and believe what is true, also, that I have now no other engagement, no other attachment, and cannot but be be truly sensible of your extraordinary merit. I will believe it," answered she, I will endeavour to believe it, for I find that even if I am deceived, the deceit is dear to me willoughby then kissed her hand with as much warmth as he could affect and running over in the breathless tremor which consciousness of his disingenuous conduct occasioned a few commonplace sentences about eternal gratitude An unalterable love speeches which have probably been repeated ten million of times with as little sincerity but seldom with so much self reproof he led her to talk of preparations and equipages and jewels subjects on which she entered with such ease as shrewd that her mind had been familiarized to consider them and that they were not without importance in her opinion poor willoughby who now felt his fate irretrievable had very different sensations oppressed and bewildered by a variety of sufferings yet compelled by the part he thus rashly determined to act to stifle them all his prevailing idea was that since the rubicon was now passed the sooner this dreaded marriage was over the better for him since his mind must then combat with more force than it could now do those wild eccentricities the offspring of despair which were crowding fast upon him he therefore pressed for an early day not with the vehemence of love but with that of a wretch who knowing he must die wishes to hear his physician fix the period when his torments are likely to end miss Fitzhaman however either could not or would not discover this and though his inflamed eyes his short sighs unsettled manner and broken sentences gave him altogether the appearance rather of a man suffering under some recent calamity than of a favored and fortunate lover on the point of obtaining his happiness the lady either from her confidence in her own charms or from some other cause was perfectly satisfied with his behaviour and before he left her promised that she would not oppose the arrangement which she understood to have been made by her father that in three weeks he should receive her hand this then was determined without possibility of recall and willoughby too sensible already of the weight of those chains which he had thus hastily forged for himself now disengaged himself as soon as possible and ran out of the house impatient to be alone and to contemplate in the stillness of his own room the prospect of misery into which he had thus rashly bound himself to rush he walked very fast and as if he was flying from himself towards his lodgings in bond street where as he passed along it a crowd of passengers near one of the crossings impeded his passage He regarded them not but made his way eagerly among them till he was immediately between a footman who waited at the door of a coach and a young lady who was coming out of a shop to step into it on his pressing rather hastily before her the servant put him back with his hand willoughby out of humor at that moment with himself And with all the world and fancying the action of the footman impertinent spoke to him very harshly and was almost provoked to strike him when the lady who had her foot on the step appeared a good deal alarmed and no sooner heard the sound of his voice thus menacing than she caught the servant's arm for support and at the same moment willoughby who had not till then seen her face, beheld the lovely but pale and terrified countenance of Celestina. Thrown entirely off his guard, and not knowing what he did, he took the hand with which she had supported herself against the servant. "'Celestina!' cried he. "'O God, it is you, Celestina!' she looked at him with eyes where surprise was softened by tenderness and tried to recover voice enough to utter more than willoughby which the immediate emotion drew from her but he gave her no time for fixing his eyes on hers all that she had been to him all that he believed she was now to another and all that he had just agreed to be himself, rushed upon his recollection at once, and in agony of grief, remorse, and despair he threw her hand from him, and turning away, he walked, or rather ran, towards his lodgings, as if he had been pursued by the furries, where, without giving his servant time to open it he rapped at the door with violence enough to break it down so fearful he seemed of again seeing celestina as she passed in the coach which by the horses being in that direction would he thought come that way farnham his servant who opened the door was amazed at his impatience so unlike his usual manner And with still more surprise saw him instead of speaking and inquiring for letters as he always did when he came in and was particularly likely now to do after so long an absence rush by him as if he had not seen him and hurrying upstairs by two steps at a time shut the door of the dining room with a violence that shook the whole house and turned the key this faithful servant had lived with him from the time of his leaving school and was more attached to his master than to any other person on earth he had seen with deep concern the sad change that had happened in his health and his temper since that unfortunate night when he so suddenly left Alvanstone the year before and had in all his journeys and all his illness watched over him with assiduous and attentive care he had often known him dejected and almost sinking under his uncertainties and his disappointments but had never till now observed such fury in his eyes and marks of desperation in his manner alarmed at the circumstance of his having locked the door of his room farnham was immediately beset with numberless fearful conjectures he was aware that his master's affairs were far from being prosperous and imagined it possible that he might be pursued for debt and as he knew his pride would render such a thing almost insupportable he feared least in the sudden agony to which it might subject him he might commit some violence on himself. Willoughby's temper was naturally very mild, and not easily inflamed to anger, but when that did happen his anger was dreadful, and though Farnham had only once or twice seen it excited during his long service, he knew how terrible it was when thoroughly roused. The conjectures that Farnham entertained were not to be supported calmly, and though he had always received strict orders never to enter the room where his master was busy, till he rang or called for him, he was now strongly tempted, yet dared not determine to disobey his commands. He could not, however, forbear going to the door and listening. He heard his master utter deep and convulsive sighs he heard him walking by starts in the room but by the keys being left in the lock he could see nothing he then went softly into the bed-chamber and from thence a defect in the door which opened from it into the dining-room enabled him to distinguish that willoughby now sat by a table on which his arms were thrown and on them he rested his head while his hair all in disorder concealed every part of his face then in a moment starting up he traversed the room with quick and uncertain steps now clasping his hands together now throwing them wildly abroad at length he stopped and striking his forehead said in a voice rather resembling groaning than speaking o accursed accursed wretch what hast thou done Still more alarmed by these words, and by beholding the frantic gestures with which his master now leaned against the side of the chimney, now flew to the other side of the room, and now threw himself on the sofa, Farnham again debated with himself whether he should not go in at any event. There was a coteau de chaise and a sword hung up in the room, and two brace of pistols in their cases, which Farnham had just put there, loaded as they were when his master travelled, and the poor fellow fancied that on these, whenever he passed them, his master looked wildly eager. This might be some time fancy, but at length, either from accident or from his feeling, at that instant some horrible temptation to escape from the evils that just then appeared quite intolerable willoughby stopped with folded arms opposite to these instruments of destruction and while his expressive countenance was marked with the severest anguish he murmured inarticulately some words where farnham interpreted as determination to put an end to his sufferings bent at any hazard to prevent his executing this fearful threat the affrighted servant now searched with trembling hands for the lock which he forgot he could not open his master demanded in a voice which struck him with terror who was there when luckily for him a thundering rap at the street door gave him hopes that some visitors might be coming who might more properly and effectually interfere, and he flew down to let them in, regardless of Willoughby, who, coming out to the top of the stairs, called to him and peremptorily ordered him to admit nobody. It was Sir Philip Molyneux, who, having just met Lord Castlenorth at the minister's levee, had heard from him that Willoughby, immediately on his arrival in town, had agreed to the conclusion of his marriage and that in consequence of it he had himself been attending the levee to hasten the affair of the revisionary titles which affair was likely to be speedily concluded sir philip therefore having received this intelligence called as he went home to congratulate his brother-in-law and to take him to dinner in portman square little accustomed as sir philip was to make remarks on anybody's appearance and particularly on that of his inferiors he was notwithstanding struck with the countenance of farnham as pale and aghast as he opened the door to him as he went before him upstairs he inquired what ailed him i hardly know indeed sir replied farham but my master who came from barnet only early this morning as you know i suppose sir off his yorkshire journey has been out somewhere since and is come home in such a humour as i am sure i have never seen him in all the years i have lived with him be so good sir however as not to take notice that i spoke about it sir philip had no time to promise he would not before they were at the door of the dining-room where willoughby stood and sternly said to his servant how dare you sir disobey me in this manner did i not tell you stupid hound that i would not be at home lord sir cried faringham in great distress for he was little accustomed and could hardly bear to be thus harshly reproved lord sir it is only sir philip and i am sure i thought curse on your thoughts cried willoughby blockhead are you to think for me heyday said sir philip what's all this don't be angry with poor farnham i would come in for I was impatient to wish you joy. Joy, sir? Of what? Why, I have this moment seen Lord Castlenorth, who has told me that everything is settled at last. Come, I'm very glad to hear it, for it must be owned that this business, George, has advanced but slowly. Well, so now tis to be done directly." The old peer was quite frisky upon it, and forgot his asthma and his gout to stand till I was tired of hearing him, telling me of the regulation he made as to your name. He becomes Earl and Viscont Castle Castlenorth, and you take as your title that of Baron Ravensborough. I heard the history, too, of how that came into the family. Well, but, George! You'll go dine with us. Lady Molyneux will be glad, perhaps, to hear about it, and wish you joy. Joy? Damnation rather! muttered Willoughby, as snatching away his hand, he fled to the other end of the room. Then, by an effort recovering himself a little, he returned towards Sir Philip and said, with forced calmness, Pry thee don't tease me with those hateful commonplace congratulations surely it is bad enough for a fellow to be forced to hear them afterwards and indeed bad enough to be married without having them rung in his ears for a month beforehand sir philip who now saw very plainly that his reluctance was by no means subdued had no inclination to argue the matter with him he had no idea why he might not be happy with miss fitz or any other woman of equal fortune but whether he was so or no his solicitude went no further than that his brother-in-law might not be reduced either to a state of indigence such as might disgrace his alliance or compel him to borrow money of his relations and as willoughby's marriage with miss fitzhaymon would preclude the possibility of any such awkward circumstances he heartily wished it and had of late forgot his usual apathy to join with his wife in promoting it there was he thought no occasion for argument in the present case since the affair was now whether willoughby liked it or no irrevocably fixed upon he therefore spared himself the fatigue of remarks or remonstrance on willoughby's behaviour and only said but you'll dine with us george to-day will you not no i cannot replied willoughby to-morrow then we shall have a large party and dine exactly at seven o'clock i will if i can but i can engage for nothing i hate to be fettered by engagements but if i can come i will shall i ring for your servants they are at the door says sir philip who immediately went away without having any great reason to be satisfied with the politeness of his brother-in-law of that however he thought not And if the behavior of Willoughby afterwards occurred to him at all, it only created a momentary surprise, mingled with some degree of pity, which his absurdity and not his evident unhappiness excited. His visit, however, had the effect of rousing Willoughby from that dreadful condition of mind into which the step he had taken that morning in regard to miss Fitzhaman and the sudden sight of Celestina had thrown him He now became able to collect his thoughts and was at once conscious of the general folly of his conduct And of his cruel behavior to Farnham who was so hurt by having seen his master in such a state and by the unkind and unusual way in which he had spoken to him, that when the poor fellow came up to inquire if he would please to dress, the tears were in his eyes, and he was hardly able to speak. Willoughby was of too noble a nature not to apologize for his fault the moment he felt it, He answered mildly that he should dress directly, and then said, Farnham, I spoke angrily to you just now, and I am sorry for it. I was vexed, and could not command my temper. You were wrong, too, in letting in Sir Philip Molyneux. Another time remember that when I give orders to be denied, I expect nobody unless I particularly name them. Poor Faringham dared not say why he then ventured to disobey him, but in the most humble terms begged his pardon and said he was very sorry. Well, well, cried Willoughby, with a deep sigh, and I am very sorry, Faringham, that I was so foolishly passionate. Let us think no more of it. He then bade him get his things to dress, and tried, by taking up a book, to divert his thoughts from himself, and obtain at least a respite from the corrosive reflections that pursued him. But it would not do. He threw the book away, and felt, notwithstanding all his efforts, his wretchedness and impatience returning, while Farnham who as he dressed his hair watched every turn of his countenance, saw but too plainly that his master was half distracted by something into which he dared not inquire. This gave a sort of unquiet flowness to his manner, which Willoughby observing was on the point of relapsing into that sort of behavior for which he had but the moment before expressed his sorrow, and impetuously bade him mind what he was about to make haste. Then, hardly suffering him to finish his hair, he started up, and putting on his clothes in the haste that denoted the unquietness of his mind, he sent for a hackney-coach, and ordered it to set him down at the hotel in Soho Square farnham still apprehending that some fatal event might follow all the agitation of mind which he had witnessed now approached again and asked if he should be at home in the evening or sup at home to which willoughby no longer able to check himself answered no as he drew up the glass in an accent that terrified poor farnham who more and more confirmed in his notion that something was about to befall his master now concluded that something was a duel the pistols and the sword indeed were still hanging up in the dining-room but yet he could not be easy and after some consideration he determined to go and inquire among the servants at st philip and at Lord Castlenor's, if they could at all guess what was the matter, and with most of the latter he was particularly acquainted by having been much with them at Florence and Naples when his master was last abroad. End of volume four, chapter three, recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.